0: So I'm a producer-director, and uh, and I gotta tell you, it's a long way from that seat or even the back of this room where I normally sit up here, um, but I'm glad to be here. You guys look a lot better from the back of the room, can I tell you that? <laughs> no, I mean that, I really do. I mean, I, yeah, I have a list actually of who I can <laughs> say. You actually look a lot better from the back. So um, I'm in the grocery store on Monday, I work Kroger, true story and I'm pushing my cart and these two women go by with their carts and one of them stops and looks at me and says oh my gosh you look just like Alec Baldwin (laughs) I'm like hey ladies (laughs) you know and I'm thinking oh my gosh what a compliment that is." is this is a few years ago and I'm thinking Alec Baldwin I'm thinking young Alec Baldwin I'm thinking of Husband and Beetlejuice Alec Baldwin, you know, really young and vibrant. I'm, I'm thinking of Hunt for Red October Alec Baldwin And she looks at her friend. She goes, yeah, what's the name of that movie where he really let himself go? <laughs> Thanks for that big smile right there. I appreciate it. I'm very in touch with who I am and uh, and if I wasn't before, that put me there. So uh, I'm very comfortable behind the camera. I'm a producer, director, been doing that for a very long time, produced a lot of different events. And um, I can tell you this, this will be the best three hours of your week. Um, <laughs> we're, you know, I um, <clears throat> Because I'm a producer, director, I try to stay to the second on time with things. And I think I will. And for those reasons, I'm gonna refer to some notes because I'm a producer-director and that's a very mechanical position quite often, but it's also very creative. There's a lot of shiny objects in my life and a lot of stories. I'm a really old guy, and not old compared to a lot of you guys, but. um, (laughs) You know, I I came here first time a few years ago and I thought, wow, look at all these old guys. And then I realized, wow, look at me, I'm one of these old guys. Especially when I look at David Crane and others, I'm like, yeah, I'm not I'm that old, but I'm one of those guys, you know, uh, So I'm glad to be here, and uh, I'm honored to be asked to talk this morning about something that I've talked enough about it over the last couple of years to guys to where I know it resonates with a lot of people in this room. Um, and it's a hard thing to talk about. So. Uh, I'm glad you're on a full stomach here, and it's bright and early in the morning. What a great way to to kick off our new year. Um, I have a... I'm a thoughtful guy. I think about producing shows. Um, I used to produce a show, by the way, called America's Dumbest Criminals, and I'm glad to see a bunch of you again. That's that's really good. In the corner there. Um, I think of years in blocks Think of times that were really important to me, and I think all of us can think about a year that was critical in our development. Hi, how you doing? Nice to see you. We all just finished our testimony, so if you want to... No, you would. I, don't, I know you, Stephen. You would, so... Go, go ahead in. have a seat. $10 cover. No, no, no. That's it. No. Have a seat. You know how to make an entrance. <clears throat> and... I think about the year 1969 as being a pivotal year for me. Now that's a long time ago. And a lot of us think about the year we got married or the year we graduated. In 69, a lot of things lined up um, to change my life. Now, this is extraordinary because um, I was 11 years old in 1969, and you wouldn't think of 11 being such a foundational year, you normally would think about being in college or getting married a little after that or something like that. But I can tell you in 1969, um, I had an older brother, five years older, sister, eight years older. My sister was kind of a hippie. Um, Think about this, 69, the number one song on radio for a number of weeks was Sugar Sugar by the Archies. It was a pretty light and frothy time on one side of the world and on the other side, of our lives because of Vietnam and a lot of other things going. There was a big clash in cultures in our world and um, a lot of people sang about things that were just deadly serious. And that's the part I heard about as an 11-year-old because of my brother and my sister. Um, My sister especially was in college when I was 11 and she was very active politically. And so I just heard about all kinds of things that were going on. It was very different. So um, I do remember the song in the year 2525. 25, you remember that? It was that was like reading Revelations, right? I mean, you sat down and like, you tore it apart. And like, Is it really going to be like that? I don't know. Um, but everything else was Billy, don't be a hero, those kind of things. That was deep on the pop side. And on the other side, um, well... There's a lot more deep songs, and I remember growing up at 11 listening to Jimi Hendrix. Um, I knew all about Janice Joplin. I knew Big Brother and the Holding Company from her start all the way through to the Pearl album, which was amazing, and then she was dead. Um, I followed music deeply and the lives of those people, uh, people closely because they followed the trajectory of our culture at the time. Uh, it impacted me greatly, as it did my family. So watching it through my brother and my sister's eyes, I was ahead of my time at 11, and I carried that heavily. Well, in 1969, Woodstock happened. That was in August, August 15th and 17th. Uh, that changed our world. Jimi Hendrix was there, James Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Sang Green River, and I, re- I remembered seeing that later. I love Sly and the Family Stone, Hot Fun in the Summertime, that whole album that came out after that. Crossley Stills and Nash, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, was a great song they added and Young just before Woodstock, and he came in there. That became an epic performance. Um, And so lots and lots of people showed up to Woodstock just mainly to check out a society. That became a big statement, and the Archies were singing Sugar Sugar on the radio. There's a real dichotomy in our world. I was more prone to listen to Eric Bird and the Animals sing Sky Pilot, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, and what was their big song? House of the Rising Sun, I remember that. So, also in that summer, that was in August, in July, we went to the moon. July 11th, we landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong took those steps. I was 11, I wanted to be an astronaut, every 11 year old did. I have a picture standing next to this behemoth wooden console TV that we have. It's black and white, but as big as a Buick. And I stood next to that while my dad took a picture of each of our kids standing there trying to mimic the same body movement. We just had a different focus. We looked beyond. uh, And the possibilities of what we could see were just beyond our living room. It was crazy. And Vietnam was way over there. And it was... And the Archies were over here, and the moon was right there. It was it was a weird time to be a kid full of piss and vinegar, I'll tell you. Uh, two other things that summer that impacted my life. Um, we had a lay witness mission at Aurora United Methodist Church. So lay witness mission, if you don't speak Methodist, that's, um, that's it's like a pep rally. No, it's just a pep rally is really what it is. So. <laughs> Um, you take a whole bunch of people who are on fire for Jesus from churches all around. I grew up in New Orleans, so these are from all over Louisiana, as far north as Monroe came down. And they give their testimonies, and you sing songs. And it, is, it, it is a great way to make Jesus come alive to an 11-year-old. And it reached me. And I've been in youth group for a while, but that lay witness mission grabbed my heart and I committed my life to Jesus. Um, it was very real, very powerful, and I will never forget that weekend. And um, that time frame, I don't remember if it was right before or right after, was the same time that I got raped by a gym coach during that summer of 69. Now, let me give you three backdrops to this. God's mercy and his plan are bigger than anything I can conceive. And that sounds like praise. It wasn't then, and it wasn't a lot of years later, as I still tried to figure out what in the world was this all about. Um, I know everything has a reason, and all the platitudes we heard growing up. When your life goes so upside down with an event like that, It just, it was too far out there for me to make sense of. And so God's plan didn't resonate with me for a long time. Second, depression hits a lot of us. Sometimes it hits you like a punch in the face. For me, it was like a tick that just crawled into a dark spot that I couldn't get to. And it just started sucking the life out really slowly, over a long number of years. And I couldn't reach it, and I couldn't do anything about it, but it just kept kept draining the life out of me. And I could put on a great show, and as soon as the show was over, I'd go right into my dark place to be as depressed as I could be. And the third point I wanna use as a backdrop here is that friends can help. Sometimes you gotta ask. I'm glad to see so many of you here. Friends can help in tough situations, but sometimes you gotta ask. Now, I'm a producer and I'm a director. I'm a, a, a totally creative guy. You, you kind of lean one way or the other. I'm very creative. I produce shows in the White House and in Hollywood and uh, some really, really great epic things and a whole lot of crap. And um, I've really enjoyed this path. That is no joke. That's literally on my resume. Um, and I'm uh, very thankful for what I've been able to do. I work with a lot of celebrities. I gotta tell you, some of them are almost human. They're they're <laughs> they're cute as can be, and most of them are tiny. You can all, you can literally carry them in your pocket for most of them. They're just they're tiny little Tom Cruise, he's like this big. And um, except for Nicole Kidman, she's a giant. And Tim Tebow, those are the only two big ones. All the others are really pint-sized, and they're so they're easy to put wherever you want, um, and that's really good. And I've I've learned over time that celebrities are great um, to work with because they're you know, they're just people, but there's this hysteria around them that's built up. Um, it's and sometimes it's it's mythical status, and that is by their caretakers and others who probably make a lot of money or a living or whatever off of being the keepers of that facade. Yeah, I can hold an audience. Sorry. Right. See, <laughs> you think a single woman walking in would go, hey? <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's on you, not me. (laughs) So, um, see what I mean by shiny objects and and Uh, tangents. That's why hold paper is old. We gotta be done. I'm not kidding. This will be. How you been? Good, good. Doing really good. Um, So. I, uh, I really did just lose my place after I did that, and, and it's written down. So how hard is that when you lose your place and it's written down? Um, I have done uh, some shows that have been impactful in my life, and that includes working with several presidents. And um, um, I spent a day with Ronald Reagan, and that was just one of the most amazing things ever, and spent a few days in the White House with President George Bush, and uh, his wife Laura hosted a show that we created. Uh, they asked me to come up and produce right after 911, so that we could help restore hope uh, in our country. Uh, I see Lonnie back here. He was with me on that trip, and um, that was an amazing time. And I got to go up early and walk through the White House with the, the usher there, and and then some chief of staff people there took me through the protocol. And it was an interesting process. The first one was this, he was a kid, he was 25 years old, looked like he was wearing his dad's suit. And he came out and he said, i oh, Mr. Gilreath, I just wanna, and I am 40 at this time, and he said, just wanna go through the process here. We're in the East Room, you're standing on a carpet that was hand-woven by Betsy Ross and some of her friends. So I wanna make sure your crew knows they can't have any kind of grease or rosin on their cables, nothing you can drag across this, they have to wear booties. and." This portrait here of George Washington is literally the most valuable thing our government owns. It was the very first act of Congress that commissioned that. Therefore, you can't have a camera anywhere near this that could possibly fall and bump into it and tear it. And by the way, protocol for greeting the president when he comes out, you never speak unless you're spoken to. You don't offer your hand a shake unless he offers first. And please make sure your cell phone is turned off, not just down, but off. And they went through a number of other things. I'm like, okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, 30 minutes later, this woman came out, and she was sharply dressed, about five years older than the kid. And she said, Mr. Gilworth, we're so so pleased to meet you, so glad you're here. I just want to go over protocol for when you meet the president. You know, you never speak when you're, to, you're spoken to, and you, you don't offer to shake a hand unless he offers first. And she would do the whole thing, but torqued it up just a little bit. Well, that happened five times, <laughs> five different layers. It escalated to where I, th- I thought Congress was gonna convene and really go over this thing, but it was all the way up to the, the they all had titles like the vice under assistant something something, and they all dropped one of those words as I got closer to the chief of staff who finally laid out what was gonna happen. So finally it was time to meet the president, Laura Bush, and they came into the room, and the president walked over, and they introduced him. Mr. President, this is Steve Gilreath. He's the producer of the event. He leaned over and he slapped me on the back and he said, hey, Hoss, how we doing today? <laughs> and that taught me an awful lot about politics and people and all that and the value that these caretakers put on themselves. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> there's a little self-importance thing. Uh, learned a lot that day. So um, I'll tell you, as a producer, I carry things heavily. I put, the producers put together all the pieces of stuff, you help people ascend to their platform and you communicate. Directors um, pompous bunch. Directors typically, I can say that because I'm one too. Um, Directors typically on TV, film, you you tell people how to perform in front of the camera. You you tell the camera where to point. You might work on lighting and things like that. Um, I've been doing that for 40 years on those and and I really love it because I keep the main thing the main thing. I've had success with, uh, I mentioned a show I produced, America's Stones Criminals. I produced a show here in town called uh, The Devil Wards uh, for 10 years, I say back when they had money, because before digital downloading, budgets were a lot higher, and then the world changed uh, back around 2010 or something like that. Um, I've just I've been blessed to do a lot of really fun shows, work with a lot of great musicians. Um, I will, I will say that the, uh, the pressure sometimes is immense. When you, you work on a show with three or 400 crew members, and, uh, oh, we're glad you're here. We just gave our testimonies, so if you'd like to go next.
1: Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> when you're on a show with a, with a massive crew, uh, the stress can be significant, because you wanna make sure you're a good steward of the message and the resources. And I've always worked hard to do that. Well, years ago, um, 10, 15 years ago, uh, I've never slept much in my life. I worked as a DJ in college and in the video department early in the day, so I only slept four or five hours anyway. That got cut in half a while ago as I started having nightmares, which increased to night terrors. Night terrors, or what a really good producer has in the middle of the night if they have stress, because it's extremely elaborate. The colors are better, there's smells, there's all these things that are just grandiose, and it it was horrifying. I went through that. For about two years, um, I was literally dismembered or killed in an elaborate fashion every single night. And I mean drawn and quartered like medieval times, uh, set on a Viking burial, floated out to sea on fire, but I wasn't dead. Um, most often I was thrown in a coffin. Often I could hear big spikes nailing me in there and lower to the ground, hear dirt thrown on top. Sometimes have the coffin set on fire and watch my feet burn and hear my own screams um, and then wake up. And going through two years of that, Average sleep, about an hour and a half a night, was horrible. Um, I, of course, I wasn't at the top of my producer game, you can imagine. Um, never got rested and never got centered through all that and never could figure out, what, why, Lord, what could this be about? Um, through that whole time, never saw any faces. I, I was different ages. I could be 11, I could be 40. I could be with people that felt friendly, but I never, again, I never saw faces. So one night, um, was in, and quite often I was on a boat or something floating. And one night I saw someone I knew, and it was Coach Ray, who was a gym coach that I had back in the 6th, 7th grade. Um, he was a local favorite at our middle school, um, and he was walking alongside me. And we stopped, and he took off all my clothes, and he raped me. And it was clear as a bell, and I woke up terrified and never wanted to sleep again. Finally, the next night, I was completely exhausted. and went back to sleep, and I had this same exact dream with this same exact detail, but I went a little further. And I remembered the exact spot where we were in New Orleans, And I remembered how we, um, uh, after that particular first event, that there were others. And then I remembered driving, it was 11, he had me drive his car, which was a big deal for an 11-year-old, but it was a tactic, because it had me, he had me focus on things outside the car, but it put me on his lap, and more things happened. And... It was, as you can imagine, a really bad long day. Well, um, I uh, thought about, um, that happened over two weeks, and finally I was at my wits end, so I called my brother, who's five years older, and I said, man, I'm having this weird dream about Coach Ray, and I can't shake it. Is there any chance it happened? He said, well, of course it happened. I said, how could it be? How could I not know that? He said, I don't know. He said. You know, there was a hearing and everything, right? And I said, No, I don't remember any of that. Um, which freaked me out as much as the event was not knowing about the event because I've always been in touch with my mind pretty clearly. And um, 39 years later, to have all this come back to me was crazy. So I talked to my brother, I talked to my sister. Started going to counseling, heard some great things from some wise men. And then when I started hearing the same thing kind of over and over, I was smart enough, I thought, to just say, you know what, I can figure a lot of this out. And I decided to go back to New Orleans. I was living here, but I went back to New Orleans to walk through my past and piece more of it together. And so I drove down there. Um, My parents were long dead. They died at sixty and 62, a couple of weeks apart, and I went to see first Miss Mary. Miss Mary was my mom's best friend, lived in the house behind us. My mom and her spent coffee time together every single day. I knew she would knew whatever happened. So now she's in her 90s and really hard of hearing. And she loved me dearly. And I just told her a little bit about what I was dreaming about. And now what Scott, my brother, had told me. And she said, Ah, oh, Stephen." which was funny because she wasn't Irish, but it just sounded better to say it. <laughs> um, but she said, I was with your mother when we figured it out. And what had happened is um, he was going to take a whole bunch of boys sailing. This guy was, I mean, everybody loved this guy. He was a big rah-rah coach, everybody loved, a big tough guy. He was going to take a bunch of boys sailing and I was the only guy. And in 1969 New Orleans, you trusted authority. You, you couldn't wait to go do something with coach ray and so we spent the day together had that horrible day she said um and i remembered i came home and i didn't talk i went right to bed but i went to bed and i went to bed every night for two weeks which was uncharacteristic and i didn't talk for two weeks and miss mary said when they figured it out my mom dropped her coffee cup and she went down to that school and she because Miss Mary was old and proper and she didn't cuss like that, so she had to whisper it. And it was, it was so gratifying to me to hear that my mom and then later my dad were just incensed by this, and that was their reaction it was so visceral. So a couple things happened. They took me to the doctor first and turns out I had to have uh, some repairs, some internal stitches and things, I was in bad shape. Um, I caught a venereal disease, VD. Before they dressed it up to STD, it used to be called VD. Okay, that's what it was back in the day. And so it was a horrible experience when you're 11 and you have to go through that. And um, we go to school because you trusted authority then. And We talked to the principal and the school board and they put on a trial, a hearing not trial. And I clearly remembered in my dreams, sitting in the classroom in a chair with all these adults Ringing the room and the principal pointing at me and scolding like it was my fault But at the end of the day, this guy was found guilty Uh, Coach Ray was given the, the harshest penalty available in 1969 New Orleans He was transferred to a different school across town and he became my high school football coach years later and By the grace of God Question mark. I did not remember that event or him by the time I got to high school just four years later. My mind was erased. My parents did, and I remember how on alert they were with him the entire time of my high school career. He was a specials coach, so he only came in on weekends, but they watched him very carefully. A couple of the families around us knew what happened, and he was also a baseball coach, and uh, there were some violent reactions uh, by me and a couple other boys when we were asked to come out for baseball. So like, hell no, um, which was bold talk back then when you're young. And um, so, so that came out as I was thinking, oh my gosh. And I didn't, I had not remembered that for 39 years. Um, exhale, catch up, so before I went, I talked to my daughter, and my kids were then teenagers, I think it was God's mercy, they were past the age I was when I was abused, I was 11, so they were all mid-teens and late-teens, my daughter, who just has a heart that drips sympathy, was 16. And I told him a lighter version of what happened and that I was going to New Orleans to investigate and just get in touch with my past. She started crying and she said, Dad, I'm afraid you're going to kill that guy. And I understood that and I said, Oh, sweet, you don't need to worry about that. I, I, he was old then. I assume he's long since gone. But most importantly, I want you to know that as I'm sorting this out, the first thing I did was forgive him because he's dealing with his own crap, and, and I had to take him out of the equation as I sought my own healing. And so I forgive him. My, my, my hope is that, that he found something along the way that would help him find forgiveness, and it would start with me. Um, so I went to New Orleans, and uh, that's when I talked to not just Miss Mary, uh, one other old teacher who was still around, a couple of other buddies who had family members who knew what had happened and ended up talking to nine people who were pretty in touch with the situation and helped fill in any gaps I had in my memory. Um, and I think it was settling in part and Damning and others. Um, so I came back to New Orleans and I had more details. Um, but the confusion part, the damning part was, um, it wasn't really why did that happen, because I, I know I wasn't perfect. I was a lot closer to it at 11 than as you know the 50-year-old the I was as I'm looking at all this. But you know, as an 11-year-old, I still understood sin and understood my role in that. Um, but if I'm bliss, blissfully ignorant for 39 years, why now? That was my big question. Why now? Or if this can serve me, why hadn't I stayed in touch with that the entire time, if that could be a platform for me? And I, I just know now that after 10, 15 years of wrangling with this, then it's such a cop-out to say in God's timing, but you know what? In God's timing. Because if I couldn't handle it as a kid and throughout, and the world wasn't ready for a lot of that talk Guys don't have a Me Too movement. I will promise you that. Um, And there's a lot of long-term damage in this room and with me, and it took that long to get to a point to where I could talk about it. But I was still off-center. I lost my equilibrium. I had a lot of depression. I didn't trust my own brain. That is, that's like losing a friend, right? It's when a large chunk of my past was untrustworthy, and I went deeper to depression. Uh, I had a nice log cabin out in Oldensville that we were producing out of, and I would just go out there and just sit by myself. And I'd go through long drives through the countryside, this beautiful countryside here, and I didn't even try to sort stuff out, I just drove. It was just a blank slate. Um, and that was a really hard time. And in one inspired moment, I wrote a letter, I made myself sit down and I wrote a letter to some friends and I told them everything I knew about that situation but mostly about where I was just treading water, how lost I was. Um, And I asked for a simple thing. I said, if you think about it, can you just call me? Call me once a month. And if you want to, can we have a meal once a month? And then I sent it to 18 close friends. And my wife said, who in the heck has 18 close friends? (laughs) I'm an extremely social guy, can I tell you that? So I might have stretched on like 16 through 18, but I have at least 15 really good friends. And I I, I sent that note to some people and several are in this room. and They're still with me after all these years. And uh, dang if they all didn't do it. All 18 followed up with me and called once or twice a month and met up for a meal. And you know what that does? It means you can't hide anymore. That filled that next month and the next month and it changed my life. Um, And years later, a lot of them are still here. These allergies are getting to me, I apologize for them. So um, 15 years later, now what? Well, I have nightmares but not near as often as I used to, and I know this for a fact. Um, I'm the sum total of all the events of my life, good and bad. Um, I'm the total of all the sin that I can conjure up myself, and that's a lot, and all the sin that's been put on me. I'm not just that event. I am complicit in <laughs> enough as well. Um, I look back at when I'm 11 and still wonder why in the world 11? And I know I wasn't blameless or sin free, but I was closer to it. But I'll tell you, I lived to tell, and maybe it's for this moment, and maybe it's to one of you. And I hope that lands with somebody. Um, God's mercy and plan are so much bigger than I can imagine. I don't have it figured out, but I am just moving forward, and I will tell you that has evolved, or Christians, can we say evolution? Um, That has evolved over the years here as I've come to this recognition on how it has impacted me and how it's impacting others. Now, I know in this room it's likely that many of you have memorized the entire Bible and you're now working on the message version as well, but uh, so you're thinking there's 15 versions about Fifteen verses right now that I can lean on, and I did through all of that. Um, but I'll I'll tell you, the older I get and the more the harder I have to lean, I keep coming back to Lord, Your will be done. It just got simpler for me and more simple and more simple. Um, and through that, I've been set free. I know in in Galatians 5 1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not be encumbered once more by a yoke of slavery. I'll tell you, I sleep a little better now. I find peace here and there. Um, There's moments when the haunting that I have creeps back in and I start over. I thank you, Lord, for getting me here through all you have. Your will be done. Thank you for setting me free. And the clock starts again. And I never know how long it's going to be before I hit that again. But I'm, I'm thankful for that freedom. So, um, three three quick things. I've told this story a few times. I, I typically talk to smaller groups and nowhere near as esteemed as this group. Let me just say, you're a good, like well, most... This half room is a good-looking group. And uh, <clears throat> I will tell you that my experience is with guys and with me, that most uh, that 50% of the guys in here have suffered some kind of physical abuse. That's a huge number. That has consistently held up every time I've talked to a smaller group where I get a good read on what guys like us have been through in our lives. That's a crazy number, and I believe it. Um, I think it's important, if, if that's in you, to get it out you. Tell somebody. Um, just just talk about it. Because here's what happens. It sits in your head and it gnaws away at something. And it, it prevents you from being closer to God, closer to others, a better family man, or something. It occupies a space that prevents you from being the best guy that God wants you to be. I know that for a fact, because it, it happens, present tense, to me, when you're not fully present. So I beg you to look for that. More difficult. In a room this size, it's plausible to think that there's a guy, or there's two or three guys who are abusing somebody now. It could be the woman you love, it could be a kid, Whoever, If that's you, stop it. Stop it now and realize that's not God's plan for you and certainly not for them. And you're destroying yourself in our world. Man up, stop it now, and tell someone. Face the consequences. You will be a better man for it. You won't find peace until you do. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. That's not his plan for you. His plan is for you to be closer to him, and I promise you that that sin is separating you right now. uh, He will forgive it. Don't take others with you. Last note. um, I got a note from a friend in New Orleans after my trip a few years ago, and I got an obituary from Coach Ray Bonineau, who died at age 97. It was two years after I went down to New Orleans. And... That means that he was there when I was down there poking around and visiting with old people going through my haunts Had I looked for him, I would have been able to find him Uh, And I often think what would that have been like had I gone to his hospital bed or wherever I'd like to think I could be this strong Christian soldier that was in touch with forgiveness that i have been given and I could walk in and say, Coach, Ray, it's okay. I've forgiven you and enjoy your ride into heaven and God bless you and Jesus loves you. I may have looked down and found that I would be standing on his oxygen tube as I said that. I don't know. Um, I might have beat the crap out of him. That would be justified in my human mind. Um, I think what's better, is that it just that part wasn't for me to do. And I'll just, I'll never know the condition of his heart. I just, I have prayed for him that somewhere along the line, he met someone else that helped him in his transformation. Um, I'll know this, the forgiveness that I expressed for him wasn't really for him anyway, it was for me. And uh, that that did a work on my heart that was appropriate years ago, and and still is, because I know God's, Mercy and his plan are much bigger than I could ever imagine. Any questions? I'm kidding about that. So, uh, thanks for coming today, and I think, Wes, you want to take us home.
1: First thing I want to say is to Steve, uh, we see you and we hear you, and we love you, we do. Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. I encourage you to take his advice. If you need to talk to someone, um, there are people in this room uh, that have those resources to listen, to care, to help. Um, There are none of us here who don't have something that needs healing, and what do we do? Uh, James says that if we uh, confess these things to each other, not we will be forgiven, because our Father has taken care of that already, but we will be healed. So what do we do with this, with these tender moments of our life together? We hold each other while Jesus heals us all, right? My confession to you is that I need the same kind of healing in my life that you made in yours. And that's why being brothers matters, okay? Um, we gotta get out of here, but two things. Leave, leave something on the table for the wait staff. Uh, the kindness of their hearts to come this early and take care of a group of odd-looking people like us. What a thing. Um, and then the other thing is Steve has written a book called *Cell Montana. Mark McFerrin says it's one of the best books he read last year. I think it was the only book you read. Might have been, fair enough, okay. Uh, I asked asked Steve, why in the world, free if they need to be $10. Free if they need to be free, $10 or $20 or whatever you wanna put on the table. Uh, It says, sell Montana, I asked him before we got started here, it's like, why not sell Texas? I kinda like Montana. But he said, well, anyway, Uh, yeah, Yeah, yeah. he loves Montana, everybody does. Brothers, thank you. The peace of Christ to you. Go with confidence that you are loved, that you are seen, and that you are forgiven. Amen.